The Woj Pod is presented by Clover plus Merchant One, better business solutions. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Washington, D.C. for the introduction of the new president of Monumental Basketball, essentially the overseer now of the Washington Wizards, Michael Winger, uh, his new GM, Will Dawkins, and a visit with Michael, and a visit with Washington Wizards owner, Ted Leonsis, the CEO of Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Talk with Ted Leonsis about his run as an NBA owner and trying to get it right here with the Wizards the way he's done with the Capitals and his belief that the hiring of Michael Winger is going to set the Wizards on a course. He talks about the decisions he's made through the years, the differences between running an NBA and an NHL team. Uh, Great stuff with Ted Leonsis. And then Michael Winger, who comes from the Clippers in Oklahoma City and Cleveland, who now has the daunting task uh, here in Washington of getting this once really proud organization, still very proud, tenacious fan base, hungry uh, for some success and getting them on track. Great visit here in D.C., Ted Leonsis and Michael Winger. Here with Monumental Sports and Entertainment CEO Ted Leonsis. Ted, how are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate your being here in the flesh and you know, big changes here for the Monumental Basketball organizations and specifically the Wizards. And I think there's a lot of excitement in the room today about the change. I want to ask you about that, Ted, and when you started down the road of making a change, doing a search, and really thinking through what it is you wanted and what you wanted this all to look like, how much evaluation, looking back at your ownership period on the basketball side, and say, how am I evaluating myself? How have I gone about this? What's worked? What hasn't? Did you have to take time to do that, to say, I want this to look different. Yeah, I gave myself uh, failing grades. I think when I came into the NBA, um, like all new owners, you think you understand the CBA, you think you understand what it takes to be successful. I initially came in and made the decision that we should try to rebuild the team through the draft. And I worked with the then president, general manager, Ernie Grunfeld, and asked if he was up to that task. And we had three players who had been all-stars, if you will, and Kron Butler and Gilbert Arenas and and Antoine Jameson, and we, we traded all of them. The team was not very good by design, and we won the first pick in the draft, uh, John Wall was the consensus number one pick. Following year, we we were able to draft Brad. Uh, we drafted Otto Porter. In fact, we were the only team in the NBA that it had drafted, retained, and maxed three players. So we, you know, we had a strategy and a plan. We had some cap space and the ability to go out and get a great transformative free agent. That was kind of the vision, and we weren't able to deliver on that. 
And then the team, through injuries, through perhaps looking, I would say, opportunistically, wavering from the plan, lost its way. And injuries really have played a big part in it. So we've made huge investments in the health science area. Um, but, you know, the last five years we've made the playoffs one time, and that's when Russell Westbrook played here. And I didn't feel we had a mindful, thoughtful plan of how we could be a great team generationally, you know, more than five years and be able to compete. Um, and you look at the finals right now, it's taken a long time for Denver to get where they are. They've been patient with that organization. They have some great players, They're very patient with a player who was injured, you know, invested a lot of time and, and care into that player's comeback. And great organizations have an identity, they have a plan, and they believe in the plan. That's what we need to do here. Hey, but you've shown great patience, too. And I guess that's the challenge, right, is you always hear that with organizations. People, Miami will say it. They're there. Denver will say it. We showed patience. We went through tough times, and look how it's paid off. But there was a level of competency. There was a level of leadership that justified it, right? I guess that's the hard part is, am I being patient for the right reasons? Is that what you're always asking yourself as an owner? Yeah. And what do I have to do as an owner? How involved do you have to be? This is a, I've built a big organization. We own a hockey team. Um, we just bought our regional sports network. We own the building. And, and so we have to have very high functioning deep front offices. Um, we have that with the Capitals. There's a president, there's a GM, there's we just hired a new coach, but there's deep organizational identity, the way we do things, our relationship with our AHL affiliate. They're in the finals right now. They've won three championships. Soup to nuts all the way down. You know what that plan is. You have confidence in the leadership, and they've been there for 20-plus years. Um, you know, I was very patient with the, the Wizards organization. I've only owned the team a dozen years. It's not like, you know, this is a forever thing. But I just, I was frustrated, and I really, I think, was reflecting to how I felt I'd let down the fan base. Um, everyone needs to know who they report to. I have to report to somebody. I have partners, but I'm, I'm the main owner. I have to report to the fans. And our fans have been loyal. Our business is good. We're one of the largest, in terms of revenue, sports organizations on the planet. But I don't feel like I was giving the fans something to fall in love with, to cheer for authentically. We weren't giving them hope and promise. And... Now, when we rebuilt the team, we were able to do that. We had lots of young players. Fans fall in love with young players, and um, fans love going to the playoffs. So, you know, we hadn't made the playoffs. This year, I thought we had a much better team than getting the 35 wins, just like we did last year. We had three 
I thought very good players and a bunch of young kids that we had drafted and were developing. So it was a disappointment, but we moved forward not because we didn't make the playoffs. It was because I didn't see there being a cogent platform and plan for us to keep getting better and better so that we could say, oh, look, Denver, they're in the finals. That They, they had an authentic chance to win a championship. I didn't, I didn't see us there, and so I had to make a radical change. Has it felt the last few years like you're maybe the one place they always say you don't want to be, especially in the NBA, is chasing the middle, right? Um, is yeah, it, that I, we feel like you've been. I I feel more that because um, we didn't have a plan. We're very opportunistic. Trade deadline would come. You know, I get briefed. These are the kinds of moves that we would consider making, and then there'd be another last-minute phone call, and bang, a trade would come before you and they'd say this is what we're doing and what are you going to say no don't do it of course and you'd end up with a player and now you had to rechange rejigger what the plan is and the style is because of the player that you you got and we made a lot of trades we we've signed so many players we we dressed so many players through the last three or four years but we ended up with the same record as time has gone on, what have you learned about when you start out with hockey and with basketball, the differences between operating those organizations, what's important in one place that maybe is less important in another? What have you grown to learn about the Wizards, about the NBA, about what it takes to build, win, sustain it, attract big players that maybe isn't necessarily as relevant to the Caps? Well, you know, I spoke with Jeannie Buss about this because we at the Capitals have a generationally great player who wanted to be here for his whole career. And by showing that player loyalty, we were able to draft and develop other great players, and they wanted to be here. And so we ended up with this culture and identity. And Jeannie said, like me with Kobe. That was our relationship with Kobe, just played for one team for his whole career. And, you know, with the new CBA, you know, you have to draft well. You have to make sure you're retaining people well. The biggest difference that I see between the NHL and the NBA is that there's so much money to be made at the high end in the NBA that you have to be very thoughtful, mindful, and smart about who you're signing and then teach that player to be magnanimous because they got paid. And now you should be about team success and helping other players, you know, to get paid. I mean, one, one great thing about having a great point guard is that he would make players get their points, and they would get bigger contracts. That's one of the ways that you become a destination, that, hey, I'm going to go play for this team, we'll do well, but my my individual stats will increase. And so, you know, the NBA 
it's a very, very challenging, I'd say probably the hardest sport to manage through because you can have a player who makes $50 million a year and a player that is making the league minimum, but the delta between them is not 50 times. And so learning how to work with the stars, learning how to get the the star players to understand that they can't do it on their own, that there has to be a rotation, and really trying to define success as a, um, you're a winner, it's a team-oriented game, and, you know, competing for championships and being in the playoffs, there's nothing like that. You know, too many players now, their character, the advice around them is just get paid. The great players are going to get paid. Then their focus should be, I've gotten everything that I have, now I need to get wins. I need to get playoffs. Um, I think what we're seeing in Miami, they have a championship culture and expectation. It starts from the top. It's unbelievable. And they bring players in who don't have that pedigree, and they go through this magic membrane in Miami, and they say all the right things. They act the right way. They trust their teammates. And so I just needed to go outside our organization and get executives like Michael, like Will, Travis, that have that expectation. They come from programs like that. Even our coach, Wes Unseld, he was the lead assistant coach in Denver, and they're in the finals, right? And and they could win their first ring. So having players and having an organization with deep experience and winning programs, I hope will help us to build the next version, if you will, that's built to last for the team. Ted, you told me the night that you hired Michael Winger that hiring your top executive from a big market organization was important. Why? Well, one, you have to realize that you have a lot of resources and you need to be able to apply those resources the right way. Two, the social media, the the traditional media, we own our own network. The, the spotlight is really, really bright here. And people just have to be inoculated, if you will, to all of that noise, but be able to be thoughtful and introverted to do their job. But there is an extroverted part of the position. And, you know, this is the most powerful city in the world, Um, that Michael was an attorney, that Michael had worked around the likes of a LeBron, you know, was with Kevin and Russell Westbrook and James Harden and now Kawhi, but had to feel comfortable working with their super agent representation. I mean, you know better than anyone how powerful and smart and talented this set of agents is. You know, there's occasions where I say, who do you work for? Do you work for us at the team or do you work for your agent, right? And and so you need someone who's strong, who is a, a leader, who's been mentored 
you know, by the likes of a Sam Presti, who's unbelievably impressive, and or Ron Shapiro, who's unbelievably revered for his talents and negotiating skills. And, you know, I just felt that not hiring a person, and what I was most impressed with with Michael is we had identified several of the people that he's hired as potential candidates that we would hire for the top job. And most executives, when you throw out names that these were other people we were considering, they get very self-conscious, defensive, maybe insecure. And Michael's reaction was, oh, I know Will. Oh, no, I know Travis. It'd be awesome if they could come work for us and work for me. And that showed me a very self-actualized leader because he realizes how hard this job is. This running an NBA or a series of basketball franchise NBA, WNBA, G League might be one of the hardest jobs in business and certainly in sports just because of the spotlight that burns so bright on everyone, the budgets, the enormous amount of, um, of investment that you have to make, how hard it is to undo a mistake. When you make a decision in the NBA, it's really hard to undo it. And so, you know, I just felt that Michael was at the right time in his life and career he really loved the area and the fan base. He had watched our team, obviously. And that when he showed me the confidence that he would go out and build a really strong group around him, and they wanted to work for him, I said, we, we found the right person, right leader. No, that's great, Ted. It'll, it'll be an interesting the draft, free agency. It's coming fast. A lot of decisions to make. It's going to be an interesting month, few months, and beyond for yep. Wizards basketball. And, and that's the other thing about leagues. They have to make um, scheduled real-time decisions, and then he has to develop, well, here's our three-year, five-year plan and budget, but you got to do them both at the same time. And, you know, this myth of, well, the off-season is coming, there is no off-season in the NBA. I can confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, we're going to go to summer league right away. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and so it's an exciting time. I'm thrilled. I met his family. They're really excited. We know how important it is for your family to feel um, welcomed and connected. And I think Michael will be the right leader for us. I'm excited about Will. I'm excited about Travis. And, and we promoted John Thompson. John's very well-known locally and we have Wes I think we have a real good front office GM coach and president now ready to take the Wizards to the next step thank you Ted thanks great to see you you can now stream the most MLB games on direct TV without a satellite dish yes catch the clutch hits strikeouts grand slams web gems with nothing on your roof so whoever's up there whether it's roofers Santa birds old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. 
Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Hey, everyone. Welcome back into the Woj Pod. Here with Michael Winger, the new president of Monumental Basketball, which is a fancy way of saying Michael Winger runs the Wizards. Michael, welcome in. Congratulations on pretty neat first day, first full day, technically, on the job in the arena. I know you've, you've been under contract, you've been working, but like this was your unveiling today. Yeah, thanks. Um, it was a great day. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, first, first official day on the job, um, probably following seven to ten days of unofficial days on the job. <laughs> but yeah, today was an awesome day. You know, you have your press conference here in Washington, and you don't just get in front of the basketball staff, but you've been dealing with the basketball group. But it's a day where you get in front of sales, you get in front of other people in the organization who maybe hadn't had the chance to be around you yet. You're in L.A., you come back to D.C. and start working. You've been hiring people on the basketball side. Will Dawkins is your GM, and uh, Travis Schlenk, who's going to have a big job in your front office. But you're around all these other people who – are going to go home tonight, they're going to talk to their friends who are Wizards fans, their family, and they're all going to say, hey, what was he like? What do you think? What do you want people to come away from a day like this who are in the organization, who've been invested in this? What do you hope they're going home and saying about you? I hope they're going home and they're saying a couple things, not just about me, but about the organization, about Ted, about Will and Travis, about John. Um, I think they... I hope that the fans and the group of folks that we had here in the building today, I hope they go home and they say, you know, like Ted is, Ted is serious and Ted is absolutely driven to build a title contending basketball team, a title contending basketball program. And that's all three teams. And he's hired people that have had pretty robust, pretty diverse experiences to help come together and coalesce as a group and really propel this organization forward. And so I'm hoping that folks go home and they think, this is Ted's team. Uh, we believe in Ted. And Ted has demonstrated his commitment to the fans, to the organization, by going out and hiring these guys. And this is a serious group of guys. I talked to Ted about his essentially a dozen years, decade plus, running the Wizards being on the basketball side, he's had tremendous success in all walks of his empire, sports, media, entertainment, a very successful hockey franchise here. It's not matched up in basketball, and he was talking about the patience and watching what, look at the two teams in the finals this year, Miami, Denver. Obviously, Miami, we know the continuity there. But in Denver, they allowed a team to build, built it through the draft, supplemented with a couple trades, some free agents, maybe more role players who came in and complimented same coach. And he talked about their patience. Ted's been patient through two different, you know, Ernie Grunfeld, Tommy Shepard, Tommy worked under Ernie, but not has not had the success that he would hope, and especially in a, in a market like this where you have resources, where there's things at your disposal that not every city has. 
what was your sense when you started to talk with Ted about what he wanted, where his level of maybe frustration had been about not being able to quite get the Wizards where he'd want and where he planned to a dozen years ago when he started? Well, when I went through the interview process with Ted, there's a couple things that stood out to me. One was his passion for the region, his passion for winning. He's proven that, particularly with the Caps and the Mystics, who have won championships while he has owned the teams. And to your point about patience, he he wanted to apply the same patient ownership principles to the Wizards as well. Patience worked for him with the Caps. It worked for him with the Mystics. Why shouldn't it work for him with the Wiz? And he's the same person. And I think ultimately what he discovered was that patience is one thing. Patience and you know, maybe not putting his, his, his foot down where he needed to elevate standards. And he just didn't need to elevate standards with some of those other organizations because their standards were already very, very high. And I think that's, I, I think that's the, the conclusion he came to was just a matter of organizational standards. And that's not to implicate anybody. It's just like he inherited a team and they were a competitive team and they continue to be competitive for a long time. And eventually, I mean, they had really, really good players. And teams with really good players typically go on to win at a high level to the extent those players can stay healthy. Obviously, they had some struggles with health. But I think eventually he just decided that when he looked around the league, there were certain things that he saw that he liked. He wanted those applied to the Wizards. And he went and he sought people who could potentially bring in some of those principles, philosophies, guidelines to the organization and raise the standards. You have talked about, uh, Ted's talked about it, of... of you have free reign to go whatever direction you feel, you and your group feel you need to go. You've got significant decisions to make roster-wise. You've got two you know, high-level players, Kristaps Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma, who in all likelihood are up for free agency. It's either you, you re-sign them or they move on and all of a sudden you have a different-looking roster or sign and trades, there's other possibilities. And, of course, Bradley Beal, who's at the start of a very long, expensive contract. He's under on the books. He's been the player who they've wanted to build around here. Is it to you a very – when people hear teardown, there's different variations of that. Or, again, you can keep going down the same road that you say you want to win a championship. Can this core be a part of that? You can sign guys. You can trade them later. You keep them as assets. There's a lot of ways you can go. How do you go about now evaluating which direction that is? And, and if you want to chase a championship, is it hard to keep going down the same exact path they've been going here? It's certainly hard to chase a championship by doing what has historically not worked. And so what we have to discover over a very short period of time is what can work and what is unlikely to work. We've seen a lot of teams even just in, in, call it the last 10 to 15 years, that have had a nucleus of players that didn't get it done and didn't get it done and didn't get it done. And then there is just a small tweak. It could be um, a small tweak to the bench. It could be a couple small tweaks to the vets. Maybe they replace you know some, some aging vets with young, high-energy players. But sometimes you just, you just mix up the roster a little bit and you get a lot more production out of the parts that you put together. To your point, I think about Denver. They've had that nucleus of players together, including Coach Mike, for a while. 
and they made a couple of tweaks and they're they're up two games to one in the finals um they didn't go out and make major major changes now of course the difference is they have been a much higher performing team than we have and that's that's something we have to study the i think a lot of the implication that particularly the implication that i've heard is there's just like this pretty constant finger pointed at the roster and i'm just not entirely sure that that's that that's the case but it is my job to figure that out and so we're going to spend a lot of time studying this roster we're going to spend a lot of time studying those three guys that you indicated two of course are you know a week or two away from letting us know what they're doing with respect to their contracts but you know we've talked internally we've said it we've said it externally getting guys of that talent level is really hard to do i mean there's just not many guys that can do what those guys can do and so to have them either you know under contract or their bird rights or whatever the case may be but to start from that spot that's a really good starting spot now what we do going forward that's going to dictate whether or not we're a successful team or an unsuccessful team but we're going to study it closely and and we might make significant changes we might make moderate changes we might make marginal changes but everything is going to be done with this eventual pursuit of fielding a multi-time contending team you know down the line michael let me ask you this do you go about the team building really any differently when you're in a small market like Cleveland and Oklahoma City versus bigger markets like the Clippers and Washington? Wow. Um, my gut response to that is it's different on at least in at least two different areas. One, a larger market team is generally in an attractive media market. And those markets typically have at least the opportunity to attract high-level talent in free agency to those markets. The smaller markets, historically, have not had a lot of success in attracting free agents to leave their incumbent team and come to the small market team. And so the larger markets, speaking in generalities, but the larger markets typically feel like they have a better chance than the smaller markets to lure the top stars in free agency. That's one. And I hope that we are one of those teams. And by the way, come on, Mike, there almost is no more free agency. There right? almost is no more free agency. Among elite players. Yeah. It's, it's more of a transfer portal. Would you agree? It is. I think the last, I think the last you know, MVP-level free agent to switch teams was the one we were able to lure to mm-hmm. L.A. four years ago. Uh, but you're right, and that could change. That could continue to stay the same. We'll see how the financial landscape changes with the new collective bargaining agreement. It might be that guys lock into deals, and you know we <laughs> we play the transfer portal game. Um, it could be that guys decide that because contracts are probably going to be harder to move, they may instead pursue happiness via free agency over every last dollar? I don't know. Uh, We're going to be able to see how that goes. Explain to somebody who's not studied the new CBA. You technically don't have the new CBA. They're still working on it, but you know the framework, Mm -hmm. certainly, of it. Why why will contracts perhaps be harder to move now than maybe under the old system? Two reasons come to mind. 
One is the financial penalties for building an expensive roster are more severe than they were historically. Not only financially more severe in tax dollars, but also systemically more severe because it strips away. The more expensive your team is, the fewer player acquisition tools you have. And so if you are, if you are a significantly expensive team, you in effect forfeit a lot of your player acquisition tools and in many ways you're sort of stuck with the team you have and then the other one is the salary matching in trades when you are one of those semi-expensive or very expensive teams the trade salary matching rules change and it makes it harder to even reduce overall salary because the let's see how do i say this the the band of trade matching is narrower and so historically, when you could potentially trade a player making, you know, 35, 40% more than the player you're trading away, you could do that. Now you can't. Going forward, you can't. And so those are two ways that trades are going to be difficult, which might reduce, as you call it, the, the transfer portal behavior. The executives you worked for start at the beginning. What did you learn from Danny Ferry? Oh, I learned a lot from Danny Ferry. Um, he, he, he was my very first boss in the NBA. Uh, he was a former professional athlete, and he had his management pedigree from the San Antonio Spurs. And so while I thought that I understood hard work, working for Ron and going to law school, Danny taught me that I had no idea what hard work was because hard work is not just a matter of doing your job at a high level. There's a competitive element to it now, too. Whereas historically, I didn't really have to compete. Um, I wasn't competing with anybody in Ron's office. I mean, sure, you're competing at law school, but at the end of the day, you're just trying to get good grades. But in the NBA, you're always competing. No matter the job you're doing, you are always competing. You're competing against teammates who, you know, two, three, four people competing for the same job. You're competing against 29 other teams. And so the hard work piece, it just, I mean, Danny, to me, he lit a fire under me and demonstrated to me that this isn't just a matter of doing a good job. You have to do a better job than 29 other teams if we're going to have a chance. And that wasn't just applicable to me. It was applicable to everybody in the office and everybody on the floor. Um, so hard work was one. Committing to something bigger than myself was two. Danny's a, he, he's the ultimate team player. And he, he just made sure that nobody in the office ever put themselves above the team. And I've carried that with me to this day. Sam Presti in Oklahoma City. Sam, um, that there's always a better way of doing something, even if you think that you have, even if you think you have the best answer. He just has this way of, of challenging you to wonder whether or not there's a better answer out there. There's no end game to learning. There's no end game to improvement. Like these things aren't a destination. It's just, it's a lifelong process. So just keep learning, keep getting better. Keep finding a better solution. Keep challenging yourself to grow. Keep challenging yourself to learn a little bit more. Imagine that life is a puzzle and the puzzle keeps, every time you think you get close to putting the puzzle together, just imagine that somebody's dumped more pieces of that puzzle on the table and you have to keep filling in the border and another border and another border. And it just, Sam really instilled in me this, uh, unfortunately endless, um, but fortunately behavioral pursuit of excellence the craziest thing you ever remember doing there? I mean, not craziest, but most unforgettable. When you talk about trying to figure out a puzzle or 
trying to understand something, maybe recalibrate how you approach something. Because he was always trying. I mean, we tried something. a lot of different things. Um, I mean, my goodness. Um, we did a lot of good work there. They've done a lot of great work since I left. Jeez. I mean, look, we, we made trades that we were extremely proud of and that worked out really well. We made other trades that didn't work out in our favor. You know, we had uh, together, we had uh, Katie's MVP season. We had Russell's MVP season. Uh, we made it to the conference finals. We made it to the finals. I mean, all those things for such a young team in, in, in its infancy of togetherness. I mean, those are really special moments. But it required everybody being all in to be able to accomplish those feats. And you look back at some of the teams we beat, you know, a uh, Dirk Nowitzki Dallas team, a Kobe LA team. I mean, we had no business beating these teams. But Kevin and Russ, um, James, I mean, these guys were so good that we could just do it. You're always looking for an edge in any negotiation. You, you learn under Ron Shapiro, who everybody else in the NBA, many in the NBA, studied, learned under. And when you get to the Clippers as general manager and you're negotiating the Paul George trade a few days into free agency, obviously, you know all the tricks. You know you've sat on the other side there and negotiated with him. You know what he's saying. You know what he's thinking. And he's thinking the same thing when you're across the way. Was that unlike any other process you've been a part of because of the, the trade itself was as big as a trade as there been in the league in the last how many years? But then the personal part of it where you're going, you know he's thinking, I know what Winger's thinking, you're thinking, I know what Presley's thinking. And then you finally get to it. It was never personal for me, and I'm willing to bet that Sam would say the same. Um, I think in a lot of ways, because we know how each other thinks, it made the trade easier because I knew that I knew that he was going to basically ask us for the kitchen sink and he was going to hold out until he got it. But we wanted those guys, and we knew that we had the kitchen sink to give. If it required the kitchen sink, we were going to give him the kitchen sink because we wanted a chance to have, at the time, and maybe even still the two best two-way wings in the league on the same team. To me, that's a championship tandem. And so, I mean, I think it made it easier. I, you know, I, I think the, the connectedness of the organizations made it easier. Um, the goodwill made it easier. You know, it's, it's difficult to do deals with teams where you sort of, I don't know, don't have a good relationship with the other side. You're looking for a different trade partner. And I think this, I mean, clearly we weren't looking for a different trade partner. Nobody else had the ability to give us Paul George. But I think Sam wasn't really looking for another trade partner either. And I think that that helped pave the way for a deal. Those 72, 48, 24 hours uh, leading into that trade, listen, you went through it in Cleveland with LeBron and KD in Oklahoma City, certainly different stressful times at the end. But that window of time where it was a moment of truth for that Clipper organization, unlike any you've experienced Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, my goodness, unlike any I've experienced. Yeah, yeah. The other places I've been, you know, deals like that, I mean, the magnitude of talent coming coming to our team was unprecedented for any place I've been and maybe even unprecedented in the league. I, I, I should say that with a qualifier that I haven't studied it. But sure, but at the very end of the day, um, you know, all the credit goes to Lawrence and Steve for making that trade happen. And it took... 
I mean, it took a lot of chutzpah to do something like that, to give up as much as we gave up, to have the ability to put those two guys together. And if I remember correctly, I think Paul was nearing free agency, and, and mm-hmm. so there was a bit of a risk on that. Um, but we felt very good that, you know, these are the two best two-way wings in the league. They're in their prime age. We felt extremely confident in ownership. We felt extremely confident in Lawrence's ability to put together a team around them to win. And I think they've done that. I think we did that when we were together, and I think they still have that team. You know, unfortunately in this league, health is everything. And we we haven't been able to, they, sorry, haven't been able to put together like an ultra-supportive from start to finish healthy season. But, you know, I, I think within the walls of the offices there, we and historically and, and maybe they now, I mean, we there were times we would look at each other and, and say, we believe we have the best team in the league. And if we can just stay healthy, we can go win a title. And, you know, Lawrence and Steve did that. They put that team together. I mentioned Danny Ferry, Sam Presti, and Lawrence Frank, who you, you knew Danny Ferry going in. You were with Sam Presti. I think you, you both had some – Danny was tied from his time with Sam Presti in San Antonio before he went – but you didn't really know Lawrence Frank very well when you went to the Clippers, right? Right. It was different. Yep, very different. I didn't know I didn't know L at all. And he invited me to to interview for the job. Thankfully, some of the people he spoke with spoke highly of me. I'm not entirely sure they told him the truth. But nevertheless, he he brought me in, interviewed me, we hit it off immediately. I love his passion. Absolutely love his passion, his work ethic, his humility. He tries to pretend like he's not an absolutely brilliant person, um, but he is a brilliant human being. And he's just, he's an appealing boss. As a friend, he's a mentor. Uh, I love him dearly. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he, I'm glad he spotted me six years ago and I'm, I'm glad he, I'm glad he took me. When you walk into an organization and now you're GM and with the Clippers. And so you were in a position where, and you were in a leadership role in Oklahoma city but there was still Lawrence was in with the Clippers. Ultimately, when you come here and now everybody's looking to you, you're the boss. When they come around the corner, that's the boss. When you think of what you've learned about leadership, and there's a million things. You can read a lot of books. You can talk to a lot of people. You can have a thousand things in your head. What are the one or two or three things that, like, when you get up in the morning, you go, I better, better be focused on these things all the time. This yep. is what works. This is what I've learned. Yep matters in this job one it's not about me i'm here for for the purpose and benefit of other people because if if they're doing their job and they feel that they're being supported if they feel they're being kept safe if they feel they're protected um nourished then i'm doing my job and so to me i think you know and l was this way um actually all three of the guys i worked for were were, were this way just Give the people in the organization, players included, the safety, the nourishment, the space, the autonomy to do their jobs the way they want to do them to the extent that it doesn't violate, you know, boundaries or, 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 or organizational principles and get out of their way. And I feel like that has worked for all three of those guys. Um, and I'm hoping that works for us. Even from the day you got in the NBA in Cleveland, how much bigger do organizations feel to you? How much 
bigger is it? How much, when you say it's, it's not about me, but also like these used to be one guy jobs in a lot of ways, two people. It seems harder and harder to approach it that way anymore. It's just too big. Well, yeah. I mean, some of these organizations are enormous. I happen to like being surrounded by a lot of intelligent people, a lot of intelligent, passionate people. Um, I don't want to work in a cave by myself. I don't want to work in, in an echo chamber where everybody just says the same thing. They repeat after whoever said it first. So I like a lot of talent around us. Um, I think part of the the seemingly endless growth of NBA organizations is because most well-run franchises think just they just subscribe to this theory that somebody out there is doing it better than we are. Let's go find out who they are and what they're doing. And invariably, if you're looking for somebody doing it better than you, you're going to find somebody. And then once you find them doing it better, you then adopt the same thing. And you try to, you dial it up a little bit to make sure you're doing it better than however you just saw it last done. Generally speaking, that requires adding people, adding processes, adding technologies, innovations, that sort of thing. And so I think that's where the team growth has come from. You know, it went from having, you know, the stats person to having the stats duo, to having you know three people on this stats group. Well, then we changed the name of it. Now, now it's not just statistics, it's, it's data and analytics. Now it's no longer data and, and analytics, it's data analytics and strategy. Now it's not data analytics and strategy, it's data analytics, strategy, innovation. It's like you're just continuing to build upon these groups by adding in more talent. Say, okay, you're focused on the consumption of data. You're focused on the, the analysis of the data. You're focused on presenting the data to the players. You're focused on presenting the data to coaches. You're focused on, on innovating, like creating new formulaic expressions of the data. And we just keep adding talent, adding people to accomplish all these things we want to do. And so, yeah, I mean, when I came into the NBA in 2005, I mean, I remember uh, we built a new practice facility in Cleveland in 2007. It had three offices, one for Danny, one for Lance, and one for Chris. That was it. I mean, three front office offices. Well, now, you know, facilities are being built with 25 offices because there are that many people that require some isolation, some quiet space to do their jobs. It will never end. I mean, like, I, I don't see a point in time where Commissioner Silver or the owners say, you know what, we're going to put a cap on, on team headcount. We're going to keep growing and we're going to keep innovating and we're going to keep just uh, importing intelligence and character wherever we can find it. And ultimately we're going to have 300 person flights to Las Vegas for summer league. And, you know, all these <laughs> hotels are going to be sold out because there's just so many damn staff members, but I'm okay with it. I like it. You had to shake a lot of hands today, hug a lot of people. There was one hug that was different from the rest in the middle of it. After your press conference, Ron Shapiro, who probably 20 plus years ago, 20 years ago, you moved to this area once before, yeah, about right? about years ago, that's right. Looking out today and seeing him there, mm-hmm. that had a feel, a little full circle, right? I, I couldn't make eye contact with him because I know what I, I, I would have absolutely lost it. When I left Ron's farm in 2005 to go with Danny to Cleveland, I didn't know how long my NBA career would be. I thought Danny would bring me in, realize that I have no business being in an NBA front office, and cast me off a year later and I would go back to Ron. And 20 years later, I'm still in the NBA, or 19 years later, I'm still in the NBA. And Ron opened the door for me. Not only did he open the door for me, he put his foot in my back and said, get out, you're going to Danny. Um, 
not because Ron didn't want me, but because Ron thought that a kid like me probably only gets one chance ever to be invited into a professional sports team. Uh, and this was my chance. And so he, he pushed me out the door. He said, you're going with Danny. You're going home to Cleveland. You're going to go live in your grandparents' basement. This is what you're going to do. Worst case scenario, you fail miserably or Danny hates you. And he sends you back to me. <laughs> and I fully expected that to happen. And so it's been 20 years since I have been, I mean, I've you know seen him, visited him. Um, but you know I've been gone a long time. I was in Oklahoma for, or I was in Cleveland for five years, Oklahoma City for seven, LA for another six. And so... You know, it got to a point where I was seeing Ron once a year, sometimes once every two years. And then, you know, once the pandemic began, it, there was a very long stretch. And so him him coming here today to sit front row next to next to my wife and daughter was um, I just I could I couldn't make eye contact with him. <laughs> I couldn't make eye contact with Sadie. But, yeah, I mean, when I you know, after the press conference, I embraced him, told him I loved him. He said the same. And it was like it was a bit of a full circle moment. Last thing, did you do you have an out in your contract to go run the SNI. Guardians, oh. the Browns, <laughs> right? Go, you're, you're going to run a, a major league baseball or NFL team? Or are you just going to no? Stick with this my my, I, I didn't share this with Ted. I hope that this is my last stop. This is where I want to be. Ted's the guy I want to be with. This is the city I want to live in. And you know, I, I'm not joking when I say I want to send all four of my kids off to college from our home in D.C. I mean it, and, and I hope that this is where I am for the rest of my career. Michael, wish you the best of luck. I'm sure it's going to be um, an eventful few weeks, few months, and beyond in Wizards land. Thanks, Woach. Thanks right. for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, Ted Leonsis and Michael Winger. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also listen to The Low Post with Zach Lowe, The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst, and the Adam Schefter Podcast with the great Adam Schefter. We'll catch you next time. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.